0: Hey there, welcome to the What Connects Is podcast where we explore human connection with people in Saskatchewan. Today we're talking with Caleb Dahlgren about struggling and emerging through the Humboldt bus crash and the insights drawn from it. It's a good one, let's go. All right, it's the seventh and final episode of season three of the podcast and we have got a good one for you today. In season three, we dipped our toes in remote interviews as we placed an emphasis on featuring a wide range of Sask-based stories, from Fort Coppell to Hollywood, and from 13 years old to Well, a little bit older than 13, we've heard stories that approach triumph, heartbreak, risk, courage, vulnerability, and financial journeys all in different ways, but the underlying thread of what connects us remain consistent throughout.
1: Acts of kindness and gestures with no strings attached.
0: People are being kinder to people. Our humanity.
1: It's like love and kindness.
0: Speaking and talking and food. I think the desire to just be better people connects us. Our guests this season have been so transparent and vulnerable and honest and so insightful. So whether or not we walk in the shoes of what they've been through, or we find ourselves in a situation to support others who have, this has given us that ability to speak the language and connect with them at a deeper level. So hopefully you've connected with Kim, Vaughn, Josephine, Zach, Alexis, and Catherine, and have taken something that has helped you in your own journey. I definitely have, but we're not done yet because today's guest just personifies resilience and determination. I think a lot of us will remember where we were on April 6, 2018, when we heard the news that the little town of Humboldt, Saskatchewan had been changed forever. That's when a bus carrying 29 members of the Humboldt Broncos was in a catastrophic collision with the semi Sixteen people on that bus tragically passed away, and the remaining thirteen fought for their lives and adjusted to their impacted journeys. People from across the world were heartbroken, captivated, and unified by this tragedy, and the support for Humboldt Strong was shown across the globe. Today we're joined by Caleb Dahlgren, who is one of the thirteen survivors of the accident. Caleb recently became a best-selling author after releasing his incredibly vulnerable and transparent book Crossroads that profiles his life leading up to, during, and after the bus crash, and it's truly taken the book world by storm. Not a lot of people know about the adversity that Caleb faced even before his hockey career took him to Humboldt. We discussed that and the perspective he's gained as a type 1 diabetic, the figurative and literal battle scars he's learned via his resilience journey through the bus crash, what the process of writing Crossroads was like, which was so interesting, and how surreal it was to become an internationally recognized author. And finally, how and why he focuses so much of his time on building community wherever he goes. If you've read Crossroads, you know that Caleb is so personable, respectful, and just so wise beyond his years. There's a reason why we left this one for our season finale, so let's waste no more time and get started. What connects us to Caleb? Let's find out.
2: Caleb Dahlgren, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on here, Mason. I can't wait to talk to you. This to be a great time.
0: Yeah, it's going to be fun. I was thinking about a good way to introduce you. And I was thinking about maybe I should put on some music that he would play when he's like coming out of the, the tunnel. But then I read that your go-to song was Animals by Nickelback. And that's somehow what <laughs> put you up. Yeah,
2: there's a big divide with Nickelback. I, I love him. Yeah. <laughs> My dad loves them. My mom loves them. Some people hate them, but it's okay right. yeah, either way it's it's cool. I enjoy it though, I'm not afraid to admit it either. no yeah,
0: <laughs> neither. I'm I am I've seen them I think three times in concert. I think Nickelback is like the white sunglasses of of music. like someone just decided one day that they're no longer cool.
2: <laughs> That's a great way to describe them. I love that. yeah.
0: <laughs> okay, so let's jump in. Um, so you need no introduction, but I'm really curious how you would introduce yourself. So in a nutshell, who is Caleb Dahlgren?
2: So I'd say Caleb Dahlgren is a 24-year-old man that is living with his parents right now. God love that. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and uh, heading out to Toronto to start my chiropractic degree, uh, doctoral degree, and uh, born in Mooshaw, Saskatchewan. Grew up yep. in Saskatoon. I guess... I can go in depth. I'm a type one diabetic, uh, have lived through a lot of different situations. I'm a family guy, friend guy, love sports, um, super positive and upbeat. And then I'd say that I also do lots of philanthropy work with different communities, such as diabetes, mental health. Grew up playing hockey, was a student athlete. And like I said, now on to a chiropractic
0: student. Awesome. So we have so much to get into. So let's jump into something you just addressed and you address right away in the book. And that's uh, when you found out that you had diabetes at a really young age. Tell me about that. It was a
2: difficult situation, not going to lie. As a child growing up with type 1 diabetes, you put in different situations that normal children don't.
0: Mm -hmm. And
2: so when I was four, I just actually at my babysitters and in the morning from about 8 a.m. till around 11 I ended up drinking four-liter gallon of milk. Oh, wow. And as you can imagine, a four-year-old drinking four gal- four liter a four-liter gallon, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. So I was going to the bathroom constantly. And my babysitter thought there was something up. So she called my parents and said, like, You need to get Caleb to the hospital. Something's wrong with him. Mm. So sure enough, my dad came and picked me up. And on our way to the hospital, we stopped back at my house with Samusha. He had to change the clothes. And so, whatever, we went back home. And as we were home, I stuck my head under the sink in the bathroom and locked my door and turned on the water to get more water in my mouth. So I was that thirsty. Wow. I just couldn't quench the thirst. And my dad was like, Kill, we need to open up. Like, we gotta go. And I was like, No, I'm too thirsty, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so finally I opened the door and he was like, Why are you doing that? I was like, I was so thirsty. I didn't want you to bother me. Mm-hmm. Was like, whoa, okay, like, we gotta get you there now. So it rushed me to the hospital within about two hours doctor came up to my dad said your son's a type 1 diabetic and he'll be insulin dependent for the rest of his life mm. and that was a huge shot to my family to me uh, we had no idea what exactly it entailed both my parents are nurses by trade so right. i had a bit of an idea but other than that they didn't really know what life was going to offer mm. so fast forward to going through at the hospital i didn't like it whatsoever Despised my time in the hospital I said, Mm -hmm. I hate this doctor's house. I'm going to throw this chair through the window so I get sent home. Mm -hmm. And I didn't do that, thankfully. Um, (laughs) But uh, I ended up getting sent home after a couple of days. My parents were able to manage it quite well and manage me. And so uh, I was fortunate enough to leave. And then as soon as I left, I got home. And about half an hour, 20 minutes later, I had to get another needle. That was when it really hit me that it wasn't just in the hospital. It was that this is my new life. Mm. That these needles are going to be something that I have to deal with. Not just once, but five times a day.
0: Right.
2: And it was really, really difficult for the first three months with our family. Um, I'd question my parents. I'd be like, you don't love me. You're hurting me. Why are you pinning oh, me down? Like, And imagine. I'd even, every time it was time to get a needle, it'd be hide and go seek. But I legit didn't want to be found. And I'd try running away. I tried hiding. I would never run away from home. I never made it that far. But I definitely like would hide in the basement. Or when it was time, I'd avoid it at all costs. And it was hard. It was really hard for us.
0: You think about like a kid, like the two biggest things that they have like fears of are like monsters under the bed and like a needle. So I can't even 100%. imagine having to do it a number yeah. of times during a day.
2: Yeah. And I was fortunate enough to not really be scared of needles. It was more, I was scared of the, well, actually, you no, know, I would have been scared of needles at the start. Like I grew on to it, but yeah. um, I think it was the pain that the needles brought. For sure. And like the inconvenience that it brought to me too in the time. Say I wanted to just go and be outside with my friends, but no, you gotta stay home and give yourself a needle. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. like that was a little bit of a difference situation for me.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, and so then after those three months, I finally kind of learned the concept that I have to find the positive overnight and that this is something I need to do to survive. I need insulin and through needles to survive. Yeah, and there's nothing else I can do about that. So once I finally got that concept, it became a lot easier for me. I was still able to pursue my dreams and passions. I never let it stop me, but it was definitely a difficult time at the start. Yeah. And I was fortunate enough to play hockey at a high level growing up. Never really let diabetes hold me back.
0: Right. So you refer to your mom in the book as being militant when you were first diagnosed. And that so, reminds me so much of my sister. My my nephew has severe allergies and intolerances. And I can only imagine how much worry your mother was bearing during that moment, especially as a as a nurse herself. So Mm -hmm. What advice would you give a parent who is coming to terms with a new diagnosis like type 1 diabetes with their kid?
2: I'd say some advice would be that it does get better over time Mm -hmm. and that to continue trusting the process because a lot of times you have to be rigid, I think. Because if you're not rigid, it becomes an oh whatever situation and later on in life, the child would be a, a little more lackadaisical and not take good care of themselves right however on the other spectrum if you're too militant and too hardcore then also scares a child yeah and the child becomes scared and that if they go high they're gonna die and if they go low they're gonna die Mm. that's not the case either so you have to be somewhat in the middle and i think the big thing for us was that we found a way to make anything work right it wasn't like no you can't because you have your diabetes it was like okay. We'll have to take an extra step to prepare for this, but we can still do it. Right. And I think that's the big thing and that's the mindset you have to have yeah. with being a type one diabetic or even really other illnesses or diseases too. Mm-hmm. Say you're paralyzed. It's like, yeah, we can still do that, but you got to take a couple more steps than other people, right? It's fine. Yeah. And so that was what it was with diabetes. And I think that mindset is huge, but mm-hmm. also that it does get easier. And there are lots of positives to it too. Yeah. Like at the age of four, I was counting carbs. And I was looking on nutritional labels. I was able to go to school, have my own cell phone. So i tell call yeah. my parents. I was really independent at a very, very young age. Yeah. Super mature beyond my years. Yeah. So I think that definitely helped me. So there are lots of positives. And yeah, it's difficult. And knowing that you can't be perfect is another great one too. Because right. some people try to be perfect and you can't, especially right. as a diabetic. But you have to definitely try to aim for excellence and achieve excellence.
0: So what did you learn as a kid? You're talking about how as, as a parent, you have to be careful what you're signaling to your kids. How did you feel like um, you have to navigate this with your peers and making sure you don't feel like super different? Or what advice would you give them?
2: It'd be just to make fun, not like make fun of it, but make it fun.
0: Mm. And the
2: way that I did it was with my friends. I checked my blood sugars at lunch whenever I was at school, which involved me literally poking my finger and then drawing blood out of my finger. Yeah, put it on a test strip, and now today children don't need to do that. They have like right. Dexcom or uh, anything like that. They got lost new technology. Thank God, yeah, yeah. So it's amazing. They don't need to do that. So what I would do was we'd have fun with it and make it a guessing game. So the first person or the closest person of the whole circle that I sit around for lunch was closest to the actual number would get one Scooby snack, not like yeah. the full package, just like <laughs> one inside the Scooby sure. snack package. And it was just we made it fun, and it was yeah. something that. People enjoyed like people would get excited about it at lunch. Yeah, they were like oh, but what are you doing your poke kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> and so like it, we made it a fun situation. and It wasn't something that was so negative, or I didn't really try hiding it.
0: Yeah, it felt inclusive.
2: Yeah, it felt like everybody could learn. It was like great for awareness, great for learning. So it was really cool because I was able to develop body awareness through mm-hmm. that as well.
0: What I really admire about you is that you've taken your own personal struggle struggle with diabetes and and your platform and even prior to the accident, to make such a positive difference for kids following in your footsteps. Tell me about Dahlgren's Diabetes, great name, by the way, and why it's meaningful to you. Thank you. Oh, boy.
2: This one is such a sweet spot for me because I it puts such a smile on my face and then my mm-hmm. heart, too. I'll start off with why I created the program. So when I was growing up, I really didn't have that positive influence to look to. People were like, oh, what about Bobby Clark? And yeah, like he was a positive influence in the hockey world, but his era was before my era. And at the time, we didn't have YouTube, so I couldn't look up and watch videos of Bobby Clark playing hockey or watch his fights or him being a Stanley Cup champion or captain. Like I couldn't watch any of that. Right. And so he was more of just like a figure than an actual person who I could see and relate to. And then there was no one else really that had diabetes that was up and coming in that era. There was Max Domi, but he's only two years older than me. Right. So like you think – okay, there's someone, but it really wasn't for me at that time. And what I wanted was someone to ask questions to. I wanted a person who's gone through the process to have questions, to look up to, to know I can still like follow my dreams and passions. Mm -hmm. So for me, that was what I wanted. And I didn't really have it. And so when I was about 12, I said to my parents, I want to give back to the diabetic community. I didn't know how or what, but I wanted to help them out. And uh, they said, just wait until you're done school. Like you got tons of time for that. You have a full life ahead of you like just you don't need to do it right now right just enjoy being a kid so I said okay yeah. whatever so I grew up and then when I was 16 I actually moved to North Balfour, and one of my good buddies still today ended up getting diagnosed with type 1 diabetes mm-hmm. and I was able to help him throughout the process gave him some tips and tricks like even one tip was having uh, snacks beside your bedside mm-hmm. and it's something so little but it's such a difference maker some things that people don't really think of, but is really critical as a diabetic. Right. And uh, he said after he's like, Man, you literally changed my life. Like, thank you for this. This was huge. And I thought, huh. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I thought, mm-hmm. well, how many other lives could I impact if I did the same kind of thing?
0: Right.
2: And so that's where I thought of Dollar's diabetes. I talked to my parents. I thought of the name. Um, I wanted the diabetics to feel beautiful for mm-hmm. their difference, but I also wanted them to have like someone to look up to and someone to talk to and have that support mm-hmm. and to not be embarrassed like I was sometimes or trying to hide it just to feel comfortable in their own skin and so I was 18 I thought this when I was 16 told my parents I said no like you're in school still wait yeah. until you're done school so finally yeah. 18 I was done in school went to Notre Dame was playing for the Hounds um, junior a hockey there and it was I felt like felt a part of something there which was awesome I joined JDRF which is a diabetic um, foundation that supports research and tries to shine a light and awareness on diabetes. Yeah. And after I just didn't feel fulfilled after my 19 year old season, there's something inside of me. And there's this dog diabetes, I really, really wanted to do. I mm-hmm. wanted a big fan center. So there's only 400 people in Wilcox and there wasn't that many fans at our games. And I wanted those children to feel beautiful yeah. and unique. So I thought I needed to go to a bigger center. So I asked for a trade, go into my 20 year old year and end up at Humboldt. And that was where I started Dahlgren's Diabetes. And so yeah. long story short, this is a program that supports time with diabetic children as a mentorship. And the idea is to say, I manage my diabetes. I don't let it manage me. Mm-hmm. And what would happen would be the diabetes would come to, I guess with their family would go to Johnny's Bistro for a little pregame meal, which is a restaurant in Humboldt would recommend if you're going to Humboldt, check <laughs> it out, Yeah, uh, show it to Johnny's. And then, after that, they come to the arena, get to wear the Dahlgren's Diabetes jersey, complimentary tickets for them and their family, and participate in ceremonial face-off with me and the captain of the other team. Um, after that, they get to watch a game, uh, enjoy it with their family. After the game, I would go upstairs and meet with them and their family and really just talk about the struggles, some tips and tricks with diabetes, and answer all their questions that they had. Uh, lastly, I guess there's a couple more things I do. I'd go to their school or to their hockey team or to a classroom and do a presentation on diabetes. Yeah. And the whole idea was just to generate awareness and to make them feel comfortable wherever they are. Right. So that was something I really would have liked as a child. And then lastly, I put them all in a Facebook group chat. So they're all able to connect with each other and reach out and talk about things that might come up or provide some tips or advice to others going through the same struggles. So oh. it's been amazing. And like, honestly, I thought I was helping others, but they truly are helping me and their yeah. inspiration in my life.
0: Oh, it's just it would be so meaningful for them not only to be like I grew up in a small town and our SGHL team right beside us were the Mellow Millionaires. And that was like a like an, a treat just to go and watch, but to be like featured would make them feel like a VIP and make them feel yeah. from where they felt so different. They now feel like they are being celebrated for their differences. So exactly. I think so important. Um, so you, we're, we're talking about Humboldt a little bit. So your career led you to Humboldt where you were an assistant captain on the Humboldt Broncos your book does a great job of breaking down an in-depth description of what it was like as a Bronco. But how would you summarize the experience leading up to April 6th?
2: Happiness is probably the best way to describe mm-hmm. it. It was just full of happiness. Everything was like, going really smooth. We had a great team. Like Statistically, we were really good. On paper, really good. Off paper, we were amazing too. In mm-hmm. the dressing room, we were great. So we really had a special bond there. And then, like, coaching staff was amazing. The billets, my billets were absolutely incredible. Mm -hmm. Um, I honestly couldn't say anything bad about my time there. And that just goes to show how amazing it really was. And the community itself, like, getting involved in that was just something that I really wanted to do and really made me a better person being a part of that community.
0: Especially, like, you talk about in the book a lot about how you have, like, bachelor, bachelorette nights, like, things like that. You can tell it's, you do such a good job of building community clearly from your story and it's not just a show up to the rink practice go home it is like a from like morning to nighttime. it you were surrounded by this community not just your hockey team but the community of humboldt as well
2: that's so true it's exactly correct and on point because that was what it was for all of us was to be involved with that community and to give back that was one of our pillars with darcy our head coach um, told us to be involved in community and to give back and to wear the Bronco logo with pride. And I think all of us did that. And so it's pretty pretty cool looking back and reflecting on all the amazing things we were able to achieve and accomplish in that time. Yeah, I think it was awesome.
0: So speaking of the things that you achieved as a Bronco, so much of your free time was focused on giving back to the community. So you volunteered at St. Dominic's grade five class, your Mm -hmm. pre and post-game taxi service to help people in assisted (laughs) living, watch each of the Humboldt Strong games in entirety, which was such a great story. Mark Cross's recreational hockey program on Sundays, fundraisers, serving hot lunches, shoveling snow and pushing out cars. Just the list is endless. So why is building community so important to you? I think building
2: community gives a foundation to create, I guess, success and life in relationships because community is what you have at the end of the day and who you surround yourself with makes Mm -hmm. you ultimately a better person or worse person depending on who you spend your time with. And I think communities are so incredibly important because they help build you up when you are Mm -hmm. down and you help other people build them up when they are down too. And it's Mm -hmm. to have that team aspect within the community. And I found that in Humboldt I found the community built us up when we were down and we built them
0: up when they were down. Yeah. And what's important to highlight, too, is this isn't like mandatory from your hockey team. Like this is time that you are choosing to spend building communities and, and lifting other people up. So what would you tell people who are like maybe in high school or they are spending a lot of time playing video games and not really thinking about that? Like what is the rewarding part about spending this time and uplifting people along the way?
2: I think it's the connections that you build and looking back at it, one of the coolest connections I think is my taxi crew and like having them as people in my life and like the things that they go through on a daily basis. Like for example, Shane, who has, Down syndrome, like the thing that he goes through on a daily basis, and what I go through, not even similar, not even similar. And the fact that he has such a positive zest for life, a big smile on his face, upbeat, loves sports, like Mm -hmm. always wears his heart on his sleeve. Like, that's the stuff that you don't get through video games. Right. I tell you that right now, I used to be a video gamer when I was about 12, 13, 14. And I didn't get that. I didn't get yeah. that at all. But through the yeah. community, I got that.
0: Mm-hmm. And I
2: really think it was something that I look back on and reflect is all the relationships I developed.
0: Oh, for sure. Um, are you all right? If we move into some questions about the the bus accident,
2: for sure. Let's go. Awesome.
0: Ahead. So there's so much we could talk about um, between the 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 crash and the book. But since you provide such an in depth retelling in your book, I'd like to for the conversation to complement what you've already talked about and focus on what it was like to write a book like this. So let's start with the phrase and I'm going to butcher this. Is it Luchter et Im, or yeah, lecht- Emerge?
2: Yeah. Lecter et imargo.
0: Okay. Yeah. Okay. I didn't do too bad, but you, you did you it did much better. Uh, so that's Notre Dame's motto and the team you played for right before the Broncos. This has been such an overall theme for your life so far, but especially over these past three years, if you had to summarize these past three years, How would you describe the experience?
2: Life-changing would be a great word to describe it. And I think that can be taken in a negative and positive connotation. And I say it positively because it has been life-changing. Literally every facet of my life has changed since the crash, Mm -hmm. other than my family and friends. And I think Mm -hmm. that's part about life is being adaptable and able to move into new things. And for me, still I'm the same person, which is amazing there's also mm. a lot more to me that I've been able to find and develop and grow, and so my mind says change, which everybody should as well throughout life. I've able been able to learn so much more about myself, uh, about how I heal, how I handle situations. I was able to persevere. I have now acquired brain injury, so I have a severe traumatic brain injury that I have to live with, which is right. similar to diabetes in a sense, where. Yeah. Um, you know, this is like completely different where you can't tell. Like I completely appear normal to a lot of people. Right. But on different situations, if I'm up late, I have to go to bed early or I can't risk certain situations either. So I can't play a game of hockey, let's say, and take a hit and then yeah. end up in the state that I should have been in. So for the listeners here who haven't read Crossroads, um, I suffered a severe traumatic brain injury and it was super... Like as severe as I shouldn't be able to remember my name, how to walk or how to talk. Um, I should be in a vegetative state. And a part of that vegetative state would be like forever, or that I'd have to work my way back into somewhat of a normal life. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, I haven't had that situation. But if you looked at the image of my brain, you would think that I was in that state.
0: Yeah.
2: And so for me, it's, the best way to describe it is I have this little bubble and in this bubble, if I do things, the bubble switches back and forth, and that's okay. And that's my brain. Um, mm-hmm. It switches back and forth. But if I get hit or something happens and it pops, then I could end up in that state of vegetative and being in mm-hmm. the vegetative state I should have been in. And so they call it like being called a miracle is really weird and something that yeah. I've learned to accept, but it's just something that doesn't really sit well. But, uh, I think it's something that you got to take for what it is. And I'm just forever grateful to even be here and forever grateful to have um, all my injuries somewhat healed for the most part of my mm-hmm. brain and able to have a normal life. But then also there was like the emotional mental toll too because so this is just the physical I was talking about. yeah. And mentally losing 16 people who you consider family is heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. But the fact that I was able to reframe it And be like, okay, if I wasn't here, how would I want people who are here to live their life? Or even reframe it as using it as motivation on the days that I don't feel like doing stuff. Or I feel like just curling up and going to bed and just trying to sleep or something like that. Like I use it as motivation. And Mm -hmm. also that I found happiness in things that I can control and not focusing on things I can't control. So there's so much that has changed, but it's also cool to see how I've come out of this and how everybody else has came out of this too. I think it's amazing. and They're truly yeah. resilient. We are all truly yeah. resilient.
0: Totally. And I think what's interesting in the book, you outline even before the crash in part one, you talk about um, your journey with diabetes and then your your father's health struggles as well. So mm-hmm. it's almost like when this horribly traumatic um, component of your life happens you've kind of gone through some exercises prior to 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 build into that resilience journey and what's you talk about being a you call, I think you call it the miracle bubble is mm-hmm. that you feel like you are ready to to play hockey and you are ready to go to York University but you have psychologists and you have doctors taking a look at your brain scan saying no like there's no way you should even be like walking at that moment how frustrating is that for you to want to move past but you have professionals saying stop, you have to you have to take a look at this first.
2: I take everything with a grain of salt for sure. And mm-hmm. I honestly thought in that summer, because I was doing these tests and I was like breaking records on these tests. Yeah. And it's like at the time, it's like, okay, if I'm breaking records, am I really that brain injured? Like, yes, right. I suffered a brain injury. And yes, my moods changed. And yes, I felt different than I normally did. And yes, I don't remember four and a half days. But why am I breaking records on these tests? Like, yeah. it doesn't correlate. I understand I suffered a brain injury for sure. But I didn't know if it was that severe. I thought it was honestly right. the wrong image. Yeah. And so I, when I said, like, don't go to school, you're going to fail. Don't go to school, you're going to fall into a bad lifestyle. I was like, you don't even really know me, though. And, like, yeah. I've had so much more things happen in my past that I've had to persevere through. And yes, this is like one of the biggest things I still have to persevere through, but it's still something that I want to persevere through. If mm. I didn't have that will or didn't have that drive, then I would have stayed back and I went mm. to know him. And I think the thing about life is that you never know until you take the risk. Mm. And for me, if I went to York University and I failed, then the doctors were right. Like, congratulations, you guys are right. I shouldn't have gone there. I'll come back home and I'll live a normal life back home. I'll stay with my family. But if I go there and I succeed, then that's just opening so much more doors for me in the future and able to show that I can persevere through honestly anything life throws my way in that even though there will be some hard days, there's going to be some good days too. Mm-hmm. And to focus on the things I can control and mm-hmm. I have nothing to discredit the medical profession. I'm going to be in it too. Um, yeah. It was just something that for me, I felt like I needed to try.
0: And we will talk about the no spoilers on, on how you succeeded. And we'll talk about that later, but Yeah, it's struggle and emerge is is such a key component of that. Um, And you talked about those days that you don't remember. And I I would say one of the most striking and impactful parts of the book is when you begin the retelling of the tragedy. And then you list empty pages that only list the dates at the top that symbolizes the day after the accident where you have no memory. What's it like to wake up in a hospital with no recollection of what happened?
2: It's it's hard to say if there's a word to describe it but I was I was clueless like it was just mm-hmm. it was shock it was not really fear it was just clueless like and I tried putting it all together pretty fast I thought okay well I'm in a hospital and I thought I was dreaming at first but yeah. then once I kind of came with it I was like okay well, I'm in a hospital I have a neck brace on I must have got checked from behind like it yeah. must have happened tonight I must play the game must have got hit I don't remember the game but I must have got checked from behind right. as the only logical reasoning for me being here. So I asked and my parents were like, no, what do you mean? And so that was when I was like, what do you mean? what do I mean? Like that's the only thing that really makes sense. And I was like, well then maybe I fell in warmups. And that was when my mind started like questioning things. I was like, well then what actually happened? Yeah. So it was definitely difficult to wrap your head around the fact that you lost 16 people that mm-hmm. we consider to be family, but also like, I couldn't even really t- internally take it in because I had to go to physio within a couple minutes. Yeah. And so it was just like bang. And then I just didn't believe it. I checked Twitter and I saw like prayers for Humboldt, Humboldt strong, being trending loss yeah. of pictures and sticks out on the porch. I was like, what is going on? Mm. And then I was like, well, this must be, this has to be real. And then I was like, no, I can't be put my phone down, went to physio. And then, came back and like really kind of got more into it. But, uh, it was hard. It was hard to really wrap your head around it. And it's heartbreaking too, because, Mm -hmm. um, it makes you, it was, I was numb though. When I first was told I was numb, I was like, this isn't possible.
0: Yeah. And one of the most interesting parts of the book I found was when you're talking about your relationship with the first responder who identified you, um, after the crash, and you were functioning like you were you were trying to help others which is so interesting like it's like that you're hardwired to do that um you specifically so you mentioned that although he has been able to answer so many questions for you you still have a bunch of questions for him that will never be answered uh what did you mean by this
2: when i said lost questions for him that will be unanswered that there's some stuff that he never saw but i'd like to know Mm -hmm. i think that was the thing that I still have questions unanswered, but at the end of the day, I've came to terms and have accepted the things that are left unanswered. And if I haven't been able to do that, then I'd still be stuck on April 6th, 2018. Totally. And so I think that I have been able to come to terms and you tell throughout the book that I have. And I think that it's part of life and that there are some things in our life that will never get answered. And that if we do focus on those whys, we may never find them. Or may chalk it up to something else that isn't the case, and I think the beauty of life is being able to accept things, and also able to learn and grow from them too, and to try right. to turn something negative into something positive.
0: So true. So we talked about how how the world kind of wrapped their arms around this this bus crash, and I'm sure there are a lot of people who are who ask constantly about it. What questions do you get most about the accident?
2: Hmm. Before the book, I got a lot. After the yeah. book, it's been pretty low key, which is nice. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'd say some of the big ones was where were you sitting? Mm-hmm. Um, another one was are you mad at anyone or anything? Mm. Another one is how are you doing in recovery? What were your injuries? Um, what was the last thing you remember? Do you remember it? And those are all answered in the book.
0: Right. So, yeah, it's very thorough. Like it's it. And I I appreciate you cover all bases from um, the community side, like the emotional side, like you're very transparent and vulnerable through it. And but also in a way where you get the details, which were so captivating and and almost through your parents eyes. So yeah. what was that like to work with your parents in order to fill in the blanks about what happened that day?
2: It was really cool to see them be open and vulnerable too. I think it helped all of us in the healing process too. It wasn't just me. It helped them too. I yeah. think it was nice to have their support as well and to help me with writing through it. Cause they did have to fill in those four and a half days. I don't remember. And there was a lot that happened in those four and a half days. So I think that, them being so transparent and open and vulnerable was something that I've always looked up to and it came through in the book as well.
0: Yeah. It was, you felt like you had a front row seat, like you were like driving with them in the back, like hearing like what they're saying when they went to the cafe and they heard about the accident for the first time. It was heartbreaking, but so captivating. It was really well done. Help me understand what it's like to be, thrust into the world's awareness and and their deep level of care, especially when people everybody kind of felt really emotionally triggered by it. Was it tough mm-hmm. to shoulder their feelings as you navigated things on your own as well?
2: There's there's lots of things I could say. So the first one was that I'm forever grateful for it. Yeah. And I think it was more than anything positive. I really don't think there's much negative from it. And yep. the fact that people took time of their day to send messages, to send notes letters, pictures, they put their sticks out on the porch, even like right. have a sticker on their car, even get a bracelet or a shirt, um, donations. Like all of that truly meant the world to me and for sure all the other families too because it's nice to know you have somebody in your corner supporting you. But when yeah. you have the whole world supporting you in your corner, it's, it's life-changing, it's moving and mm-hmm. it's captivating it just grabs you in and like makes you want to do more. And yeah. so I think, and to like keep on pushing a bit harder than you normally thought you would. And so I think yeah. that was huge for my healing process. And at the same time, it also made me realize that more people need support through their own tragedies. So while I was in the hospital, there was this elderly lady who was in her room with other Broncos and she didn't get near to any of the support that we got. We had visitors outside of her room waiting in the hallway constantly all day, every day. She had yeah. one visitor maybe once every two or three days. And that's what it hurt me was the fact that like she didn't get anybody to come visit her and support her throughout her tragedy of her own. But we had outpouring support throughout our own tragedy. Right. Mm-hmm. And so now my heart goes out to lots of those who need that support. And uh, definitely I try to be super supportive in all situations. And then moving forward, from that, to answer your question now, some of the tough part was having people come up to you and not knowing how to interact with them. Yeah. Some people, it touched them so closely to the heart where they would express their emotion on you, which is fine. I'm okay with that. But it was hard for me to kind of learn how to actually engage with people because when I go, let's say I went to the mall one day and it was like, one of my first times going out of the mall Mm -hmm. after the crash and I was wearing a hat. Um, my hair was dyed still, but you couldn't see my hair dye. Um, and I walked into the mall and I got through the first set of doors and one person stopped me, started talking to me. I was like, okay, whatever. Um, Uh, and then once people caught wind of who it was, they formed a line. There's a line of about 18 people in the mall. And I was like, Whoa, I wanted just to get some toiletries. (laughs) Like I just got, I'm just trying to get (laughs) get some toiletries and get a link for my watch. That is it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so like, I'm talking to these people and I was with my mom at the time and it got to the point where I was just like, look, mom, like you got to go in. I got to like go back to the vehicle. I'm getting mentally and emotionally drained from talking to all these people. And everybody had a story and everybody told me about the day they remembered it. Um, what they were mm-hmm. doing at that time. And I love that. I love those connections. I think even now with the book, you get so many people talking about their connections to it or like how it changed or how it moved them. And I love it. But then for me, when I was doing that and talking to them, there'd be lots of emotions. So like we had that mm-hmm. mental connection, but emotionally they were either like super triggered and crying or they just wanted to hug me or I just want to mm-hmm. shake my hand or they just wanted to offer their condolences but didn't know what to say or how to say it. So there's a lot of those, like, difficult conversations I've had to deal with, which is awesome because it's also made me grow. But it's also interesting to see how people handle the situation, all differently sure. too. And some are like, yep. hey, love what you're doing, keep going. Some are like I'm – some are, like, literally on their knees crying. Uh, some are, like, in my shoulders just – sobbing and crying and like just wanting to hug me and let it out. It's like yeah. such a different range of emotions and some like can't even look at me because of what I've been through and like it triggers mm. them too much. So, right. so many different things were happening at that time and you get stares, you get uh lost things like that and everybody just means well. And at the end of the day, yeah. when you look at it, everybody just means well in their own certain way.
0: Yeah. And that's awesome that you have that book now for, um, to for people kind of to read in depth to understand what you went through and kind of process their own emotions as they go through it as well. So let's talk about mm-hmm. writing the book. So give me a general overview of what the process of writing a book is even like. I'm sure it's much more complex <laughs> than just opening Microsoft Word and going from there.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I actually just typed everything out and it was done.
0: Yeah, not, <laughs> no. yeah take it, print it.
2: <laughs> First, it was like, the process of actually deciding to write was a big one and it took so long and I could talk for about 20 minutes about even trying to get to the point of me wanting to write the book or me right. feeling that I was capable of writing the book or me even devoting the time to write the book so that was like mm-hmm. in itself a lot and it was like was I ready emotionally these were like the questions I had it was like was I ready emotionally were others ready emotionally was it gonna help or hurt me was this mm. going to be something that I want for the rest of my life? Because once you write a book, it's out there forever. So it's not right. just like I write a book and then a year later, it's gone. It's there yeah. forever. Um, right. And then also, how will this impact me 10 years down the road? And and in the immediate future, too, how will it impact me? Will it will affect my studies? Will it affect me getting to Cairo? So there is a lot on my plate, too. And then even the main point was, will it help others? Because I said to my agent, Jeff Lones, who's absolutely incredible, um, I said, like, I'm only going to write a book if it helps other people. I was adamant about that throughout the whole process. As I said, I want this to help others. I don't want this to be about helping me. I want this to help others. So I was able to donate a portion of proceeds to STARS, and I was able to get lots of my thoughts and ideas and things that I thought and truly value in life out there that need to be discussed. So I think that was a great way for me to actually help others. And in turn, it helped me too. I was able to find strength in being vulnerable. So the process was hard for the first part, even like getting to that point of figuring out about writing. And I had to actually get a push from my professor. Um, I was sitting in class one day and I was like really teetering it. I was like, I don't think I can do it. I don't know if I can do it. Do I want this time commitment? And so my professor said in class one day, he's like, if you want to change the world, it starts with you. And that was mm-hmm. when it hit me. So when mm-hmm. he said that to me, it absolutely like hit a chord in me. I was like, oh my goodness. Like he has no idea what I'm going through right now with this book. Right. But like, he's right. And I do want my dearest yep. in the world. And if I did die in a year from now, I would have been mad that I didn't at least try this new opportunity and take the risk. Yeah. Because life is short.
0: So how, what does that process look like? Like, do you like sit down and write a first draft? Do you work exactly. with somebody who asks questions? Tell me about that. I'm really interested about that. So
2: that part was interesting. So once I officially kind of got on and was like, okay, I'm going to do this, I had to choose a publisher. And mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough to have two major publishers. I had quite a few, but I had two major ones I was really interested in. And one was Ping the Random yeah. House and the other one was yeah. HarperCollins. And Crazy. so both of them are huge ones in Canada um, and even North America too. Mm-hmm. But uh, I ended up picking HarperCollins. I just felt a little more comfortable with them would be the best way to describe it I just felt more comfortable and secondly was choosing a co-author because mm. I knew I couldn't write this alone I, as a student I was in five courses um, I was working towards my chiropractic uh, admissions so I had to have like high marks in the first place yep. on top of that I was student athlete I was in four different things volunteer wise with our team and not easy roles either and then I was also four volunteering things externally I was within <laughs> our like student council at school. Like there's so much going on. And living right. on my own in Toronto. So it was just like kept piling up. Wasn't wasn't like it was easy. So I had to pick a good co-author who could actually like work with me on the times I could work. And it was just the weekends. We did some talking within Harper Collins and we approached Dan Robson. He was actually my first person I approached. And I instantly connected with him and hit it off and everything kind of aligned from there. So what the process was was on Sundays we'd meet up for about 4 to 5 hours before covid. This was in like January of 2020. And okay. uh what we'd do is have just a conversation like you and I are having right now. And it yeah. just be about my life, kind of the ideas, my values, the situations I was in and what I like how I took them, um my feelings from the situation. And then from there, we voice recorded it. So it was no writing, nothing. And we did that for a good five months. Mm. Just like every Sunday, hashing it out, talking for a good four or five hours. Um, And then with COVID, we do it online through Zoom. Uh, We get like my parents involved, my friends involved, uh, lots of different things like that, just to really get all the details in place and have the correct details in place. So I had yep. talked to tons and tons of people about little small details that wanted it to be correct. There's and tons of details tons. Yeah. And so no. that took a lot of time, but once we got that done, then we transcribed the voice to text. Mm-hmm. And what we would do was Dan would send me the voice to text, He'd like rearrange it. So that it made more sense. And then he would send it over to me and I would edit it. And like the first he sent over the prologue and, I think the first wow. two chapters at a and he sent like three at a time normally. And so he sent the prologue prologue the first two, and I like absolutely tore it apart. I, yeah. And he I sent it back to him. He's like, Oh my goodness. <laughs> and I was like, I'm so sorry. But like, and I like when I say tore it apart, I changed like literally every line, yeah. every sentence I changed, every line I changed every word I changed, like it literally was like all red, maybe a little bit of black, but like all red. And he was just like, okay, so we got a lot of work we need to do, don't we? And I was like, yes, (laughs) we do. (laughs) So, um, we finally kind of got into a rhythm though, like after the first, I say six chapters, we finally got like into a bit of a rhythm and uh, he knew kind of how I wanted to write. And so what we did was we wrote together and like that was like super, super cool. So, he would do like the three chapters, and he would send it to me. Then I would edit it completely because I, mm-hmm. I really. He said I was the most involved person he's ever been with in the book process, oh, really? ever. <laughs> so um, I'm like not a perfectionist, but I'm definitely a, try to aim for excellence in everything I do. And with well, this, it's also
0: your story, right? Like yeah, if you want to get this right. Like oh, this is yeah. your legacy, and yeah. I'm
2: like going. All in, like if I do something mm-hmm. in anything in life, I'm all in. I'm not just half in. I'm not just like yeah. going to give a little bit. I'm going to be all in. And right. so like it took he actually didn't realize I was going to be that all in either. And so yeah. what we did was he would send his three, like as he changed the text and like trying to move things around to make it flow. And then he sent it to me and then I would edit it completely. And then mm-hmm. uh, we'd go on a Zoom call, share the screen, and we'd go through it together after. Gotcha, And that worked super, super well. And it was really efficient, good with time. It was good to like throw my thoughts out there too. And like I had tons of ideas before. Like you said, those four and a half blank pages, that was my idea. Um, cool. I had the tribute chapters and an idea as well. Um, the yep. nurse's note. There's a lot of things that I really wanted in this book. Even the text messages from my mom. Yep. I think like those are things that I really, really wanted in the book. To make it different to not have normal things or even like the foreshadowing or the hooks or the slogans at the start like i really wanted to make this personally for me and to show that books can be different and that there are things that can like grab people in and pull them in and i want to use tons of literary devices and so yeah, I brought my nerd can, side. <laughs>
0: yeah, it catches your attention, right? Like yeah. whether you're like, oh, this is an empty page. Oh, that's impactful. Or it's like, is this a text message? You're like, yeah. this is, it just catches your attention a different way and captivates you in a different way as well. Exactly.
2: So that was the whole idea was to let my creative side come out and my nerdy side come out too. And I loved yeah. it. I loved being a nerd with Dan and he was incredible to work with. And I can't yeah. say enough good things about him and his family because they truly helped in this process. And then, after that, we would send sent part one to my publisher. They would edit it, send it back, mm-hmm. and give some suggestions for the part two. Um, and there really wasn't much at all. They're they're really, really pleased with it. And then yeah. part two, same thing. We went through it, edited it, and then we sent it over to the publisher. They came back, edited it again. At the end of it all, we had tons of proofreaders. There's one mistake, someone caught it. Um, oh no! There's yeah. one, and like <laughs> I went so hard through it too. Yeah, and yeah. But there's one. And it wasn't that bad. It was like some super minor. But uh, every book, actually, like if you look closely, you'll see like one to five mistakes in every yeah. book. And so yeah. it's so rare to have none. And uh, I thought I had none until a person messaged me. Like it would have been three months after the book was out. It was like in June. Yeah. They messaged me. And they're like, "Yeah, like there's this mistake." just found it. Now I read through your book twice yeah. already. So I just found it. I was like, okay, great. we Well, this change it on the next reprint is fine.
0: Oh, and it was probably like yeah. apostrophe in the wrong oh, yeah. place. That's exactly
2: like that. what it was. It was exactly yeah. a apostrophe in the wrong place. So yeah, it's all fine. And then yeah. uh, after that, the book went to print, but in the meantime, we had to find blurbers. We had to find um, people who wanted to read the book and provide quotes, which are blurbers, yep. what they were for people that don't know. Um, okay. And then also we had to design the cover like even the mm. name, like there's lots behind the scenes too that had to do. And I even talked to like the 16 Angel families about right. the tribute chapter because I wanted to make sure that they were okay with what was in there. And so yeah. I gave them all like a preview of what it was and said, you can edit it however you want. Um, so there was a lot of things that was behind the scenes that people really didn't know about. That is yeah. a lot of work. Even selecting pictures. Like I had to oh, pick yeah. pictures. I love pictures. And so it's so yeah. hard to actually like pick the right picture, um, yeah. so yeah, like looking back, it was such a cool process, and mm. uh, I honestly went to change anything. Like with the crossroads, they picked the title that I wanted. Um, yeah. Subtitle, I didn't really decide. It was more the publisher, but I was fine yeah. with that. Um, but like they let me choose the title completely. They let me choose how I wanted to do my cover, and I I got to pick the whole cover from top to yeah. bottom. I designed it myself. I got the picture idea myself. I yeah, so like they let me take full reins on this. I normally publishers don't, and that's yeah. why I felt so comfortable with Harper Collins. Is that they said like this is your book, and we're gonna let mm. you do what you want to do with it. As long as yeah. we like approve it, it is nothing too crazy. Like we'll let you do what you want to do.
0: What's it like to go through those moments? Like we talked about like the details and mm-hmm. and you clearly took so much pride in making sure anyone you featured, it was like an authentic snapshot of who they were. What was it like to go through like those stories and and to reflect back on on all of these years and these meaningful moments of your life and then put it into that written word? What was that like?
2: I think it was super uh healing. And vulnerable as well, because it's one thing to like open yourself up. And it's like I didn't really equate strength to being vulnerable in ever because I always was like, Yeah, you gotta be physically strong, mentally strong, but not emotionally strong. And I think that's where vulnerability comes in, is the emotional side. And for me, I found strength in being vulnerable. And so when I went back and looked at it, it was like all these connections. I keep relating back, but it was a community. Like even my teacher, in grade eight, in Mr. McMaster, grade seven, Kelly Lacey. Like I remember these people still and the impact yeah. that they had on me as a person. And yeah. so when I went back and I like went through all these memories or about my personal trainer and my teammate, and those were things that I never even like really knew at the time bothered me, but they did. And yeah. then to heal from everything, like I really feel fully healed from everything that I've dealt with in my life. I think there's so much beauty in that and the fact that I have accepted everything that has happened. I have no fear or I have no remorse or I have no anger or pain. I just have love and I think that's the beautiful part about it.
0: Oh, that's awesome. So when you were days away from releasing the book, how nerve wracking was it to not only release a piece of work you've been working on for so long, like almost like a, like a project, but it's your story. It's it's one that, that tells about your life and deeply personal insights from it. What was what were you feeling right before you were about to release the book?
2: I was more than anything excited. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I knew how much hard work I put into it mm-hmm. and how I literally put my whole heart into it, too. It wasn't yeah. just like where I felt like, oh, it wouldn't be – if it was a bust and people didn't like it, I wouldn't care because I literally put my whole heart into it and I did the best I yeah. could. Yeah. People liked it, and that's great. I think for me, it was more just excitement just to see what happens, too. Because yeah. I didn't know what was going to come. It could have been great. It could have been horrible. Um, mm-hmm. And that's okay. Either way, I was okay with it. At the time, I was like, well, if it's great, it's great. If it's bad, it's bad. That's fine, as long as this helps people. And that was the whole mindset that I had was that it would help people. So right. I knew no matter what, if I sold one book, I was donating a portion of proceeds to Stars and that was the whole goal that was the whole goal was to actually make a difference and if i could save somebody's life i think that is truly something life-changing and so i know for me the second chance of life has been awesome i've tried to make the most of it but even before the crash i always try to live life to the fullest too because i knew how fast i could go away with my dad my personal trainer my teammate like it could be gone in an instant so that's why i knew like With this, I was like, I'm I'm happy with how hard I put my hard work into here. And so I was not really too nervous, to be honest. It was more just like excitement and curiosity of how people are going to respond to the book.
0: Yeah. You got to live big. Yeah. Learn that book. So take me to the release of the book and what that ride was like.
2: That was awesome. I think I wasn't expecting all the attention either, to be honest. That was overwhelming a bit, I'd say, because... I'm pretty low key guy, not going to lie. But obviously i got thrust into the spotlight quite fast after the crash. But if you were to look at me beforehand, I didn't really do too much media. I did lots of like awareness, which I think are two different situations. Awareness is like, but through my speeches and being a part of JDRF and volunteering, media was different. And so I had to take some lessons in media. um, And so like that first day was just full interviews, second day full interviews, third
0: day full interviews.
2: And if we know cool anything interviews. about
0: hockey players, it is like the typical media interview. They don't tell you anything. It's all like, "Oh yeah, it was a real team effort, and uh, it was nice to dump some pucks into the other end yeah. of the net." Like this, is, oh, yeah. you have to be like quite um, articulate in these interviews. It's much different, exactly. So for me, that was like one of the things
2: was did some training. I did lots of prep beforehand. And, like these are things that people don't think of about the book process. They think, okay, mm-hmm. you write a book and that's it. But no, yeah. there's so much more that like, goes behind it. There's the media, the marketing, the PR, um, even the engagement, like trying to get people interested. There's just, there's tons of different things that people don't really think of. Even the response of people, like the book was not released until the 16th officially, but there was yeah. people getting the book on March like 10th yeah. right? and from the bookstore, because the bookstore put it out early because they got it and Oh, really? <laughs> and so like people are messaging me like, your book's not supposed to be released but like why, oh. why how do we get your book like i'm reading it right now it's awesome I'm like well that's good you're yeah. reading it but like <laughs> maybe try not posting it and like, people right. didn't care they posted it and they're like i got an early copy crossroads and all yeah. this i was like oh no so yeah i wasn't allowed to repost any of that until um the 16th that was just like right. my publisher said just so that everybody had an opportunity to get it yeah. um, i thought it was pretty funny when i got like lots of messages from people so i knew even before the release date actually that people were really enjoying the book because people were done awesome. the book even before it got officially released <laughs> Yeah. so yeah that was cool to see
0: so i want to give you the opportunity to shamelessly brag about the success of the book Tell me about what the ride has been like. Like, tell me about sales. Tell me about being featured as a best-selling author. I want to hear all of that sort of stuff.
2: To be honest, if I'm going to brag, it's going to be about the connections I've made going into it. You're going to probably laugh and everybody in the book world is going to laugh, but I was actually at my conference with Harper Collins and I was with everybody. And they're like, uh, it was the first week and I was named whatever bestseller out of the gate. And they're like, how's it feel? And I was like, it's okay. Like that wasn't really my goal, <laughs> and everybody's You're like, right. and everybody's faces are just like, oh. "Yeah, <laughs> did he just say that?" And I was like, "Yeah," I was like, "Seriously, it wasn't my goal." Like, right, my goal was to connect with people, and I said the connections on our part have been unbelievable. Like, I have people telling me their life stories about things that they've gone through in life that has challenged them or changed them, or even how my book has connected with them and have made them have a different view on the world. One man reached out to me and said, like, hey, I was battling concussions, um, playing professional hockey right now, and I read your book, and I think I'm going to pack it in. And he said, like, I think yeah. you just saved my life. He oh. said, if I take another hit to my head, I probably wouldn't be in a good spot.
0: Right. And
2: I was just like, wow. Like, the touch of that, or even someone, like, about how they were having suicidal thoughts, and right. they were actually thinking about doing it soon. And my book came out, and they were curious, I suppose, so I read my book just – just to read a book kind of thing yeah and after they read the book it literally spun their whole world around and now they're doing amazing and i actually have kept in contact with them and they're doing amazing seeing a counselor um working on it and really enjoying life right now so like that's the bragging i want to talk about not how many books i've sold or the sales or anything like that it's the that the awareness for stars it's about the connections like i said and Being able to shine a spotlight on things that truly matter like uh, hope, family, resilience, uh, positivity, uh, Mm -hmm. mindset, even like mental and physical health, loss of things, brain injury awareness, diabetes. There's tons of things that I put in the book that I really want to talk about. And so that's yeah. what is nice for me is to have that connection with people.
0: That that is the most Saskatchewan answer I've ever heard. Like I don't want to brag about the success about it. I want to talk about how I'm elevating and helping others as well. That's so awesome. So we let's talk about Stars. Let's talk about why um, the choice to donate a portion of the book sales to Stars Air Ambulance and the Pegasus Project was so important to you. You've kind of talked about it, and, and I'm not surprised you did because you're like everything you do is meant to help others. It seems like. But tell me about that process and what it's been like to To work with STARS in that aspect?
2: Working with STARS has been an absolute blessing. They are such a great organization. So I'm really grateful to be part of their team. And the reason why I wanted to do it was because on April 6th, they help save lives. But it's the fact mm. that they save lives every day. It's not just on April 6th, 2018. It's they save lives every day. And right. I didn't know about their service, to be honest, until my team and family needed it. And mm. that was one of the big things that was an issue within me was that I didn't know about what they did and how much they impact lives. Like they literally save lives every single day. And once I found that out, I said, well, I need to do more. Like I have to help them out. They helped save some of my teammates and my family members. And so for me, that was one of the big things was to help other people throughout their own challenges when life is near the end and they need that support.
0: Oh, so true. Okay. Let's call a quick intermission. Caleb needed to utilize Star Services during the bus crash and often speaks about how they helped save his life, which is why he's donating a portion of the book sales to support Stars and their Pegasus project. Connexus is also a huge supporter of Stars and are the presenting sponsor of the Pegasus project. So to break down why and how Conexus supports Stars and why you should too, I have Courtney Rink, the manager of community engagement on the line. Take it away, Courtney.
1: Thanks, Mason. I'd absolutely love to tell you about the partnership that Connexus has with Stars. This is one that I personally am so excited about, but I know Connexus is too, because anyone across the province of Saskatchewan may need access to a critical health service that STARS really provides. And ultimately having a reliable air ambulance available can really mean the difference between life and death. They're focusing on putting the right tools in the hands of the best talent. And in return, what this does is not only save time, but saves lives. Our $500,000 contribution is to go towards the much-needed aircraft fleet with the latest cutting-edge medical tools available and truly something that they need to keep the fight in flight. For us, contributing to this campaign is a way for us to ensure that all of Saskatchewan residents have access to this life-saving care when they need it most, now and for future generations to come. Oh Mason, but you did mention one more thing, which is the Pegasus project, which I do not want to forget. We are so excited to be the presenting sponsor for this. Uh, It is a fundraising campaign that has brought together oh so many, whether it's Ford, MNP, the Shen brothers, Von Wyant, Kim Coates, Caleb Dahlgren, the entire organizing committee. Oh my gosh, you guys, the list goes on. We hope to see your support across the province throughout the summer so that they can continue their efforts and remain the beacon of hope across Saskatchewan.
0: Thanks, Courtney. We've talked about STARS a lot during Season 3, but it is truly a service that saves lives each and every day. If you'd like to learn more about STARS Air Ambulance or donate to The Pegasus Project, visit www.stars.ca. Now let's get back to our interview with Caleb. So a couple more questions for you. Mm-hmm. I think what's what I love about your book is that it is you're so vulnerable with with the struggle and um, the successes and just the overall experience. And I think we're seeing so many athletes becoming very publicly vulnerable with their human experiences, like DeMar DeRozan and Naomi Osaka speaking about mental health, Carl Nassib and Luke Prokop about publicly sharing that they're gay and even you being transparent about your experience, like I said. Tell me why this representation is important.
2: We're all humans too. And I think mm-hmm. lots of people, and I've really, really found in this process is that lots of people equate, let's say like the best at their sports to be in a God status or to be yeah. like elevated than everybody else. And yes, they are elevated at their sport or profession or whatever they're doing, but they're just human beings. And at the wow. end of the day, we are all human beings. So I think that's why being open and honest about the situations that we face as human beings with other human beings is so special because mm-hmm. even like, for example, Luke coming out as a first hockey player, I actually messaged him and he uh, we talked a bit about it. And I said, like, I hope oh, awesome. you found strength and being vulnerable. He said, I sure did. And oh. I think that was like the cool part about it is that there's so many different athletes out there who still put on a facade, but away from their sport or whatever, they're not happy on the inside. And I think being true to who you are and true to who you, what you bring to the table also elevates your game or whatever, your job or whatever you're doing. And so for me, I've always been true and authentic. And I think that has helped me become better as a person and also brought me to achieve my dreams and goals by being authentic and real. And so now that you see more of these, I'm sure there's be a lot more too. I'm sure there's be a lot more people being more open about what they're feeling or the daily struggles that they have too. Because at the end of the day, we are all human. And I think once you get that connection with other people, it's truly life changing.
0: Yeah. And I think it's important because it signals to other people that it's okay. Exactly. Like you're talking about, like these God like figures that you're watching on SportsCenter, like it signals to them, like, oh, they are like this too. It's okay exactly. for me to feel safe in that moment. 100%. Too.
2: And that's what you want is like to have that people feel comfortable that what they're going through is not by themselves and that they are normal the way that they are and they are beautiful for the way that they are.
0: For sure. So in the book, so in this conversation, you've talked about how there are so many things that you wanted to make sure you got right. And there are so many layers of symbolism in the last sentence of the book. And I'm just going to repeat it here. Mm-hmm. We turned north towards a gray horizon beyond fields of green and gold. Like So much symbolism and so many different layers. It's perfect. How did you land on this for the last sentence of such a meaningful story?
2: That um, was like, <laughs> not gonna lie, took a lot of time. But yeah. uh, it was actually... Pretty fast once I wrote it down. Um, mm-hmm. Dan and I talked about it and I said, like, how do we want to end this? We talked it and we I said, like, I have so much left in my life. I want to be driving down the highway. Mm-hmm. And he's like, Yeah, like I love that. And he's like, it's such a fitting scene. So we talked about it more and like what's on the highway when I was driving down was green to gold fields. Yeah. And I thought, like, that was so cool.
0: Green and gold fields, like the humble like colors, like it's it's such a Saskatchewan sentence, but it, it, it signals and symbolizes so much that when I closed the book, I was like, What a fitting end. That was a a book told by a Saskatchewan boy that was seen by by the entire world. And I felt so much pride in that moment for you to be able to Thank share you. and end that story in that moment. Thank you. Um so speaking of New Horizons, um, after the crash, against the professional opinion of doctors and psychologists, you started. Uh, university at U- York University and took a course load that would overwhelm any other student. Not only did you do it, but you finished on the dean's list, a U Sports Academic All Canadian, and magna cum laude at the conclusion of your degree. Why was this so important for you to be like? You know what? I know what my limits are. I'm ready to go. Um, I'm ready to take on this next chapter of my life.
2: I think it was because I had the eternal drive for further things in life. Like I still wanted to be a chiropractor. I still want to try to see if I can still play hockey one day. I also want to do it not for just myself, but for the 16 right here. I had Mm -hmm. so much things inside me that said like, you got to just go, you got to go, just try. And it was difficult, especially when you're like going against people who you respect and view as the best in their profession against their opinions. And it's not easy when doctors are like, you're going to (laughs) fail and you're just like, Oh no, I'm not. It's like, you take yeah. it with a grain of salt you're like maybe i might fail like i don't know right like, i was smart yeah. in high school but i don't know how i'm going to be and so i think at the end of the day i was just taking that risk because if i didn't risk it i would always wondered what if
0: it was it was your dream too before it was you talked about yeah it so it's a
2: huge I think... goal and huge dream in life where i worked yeah. that hard for like that long to get to that point and for me just yeah. to throw it away it was it did make
0: sense. Totally. And what it shows is like, you can take some things from me, but like, I am going to take this back. This is something that I want to put my, my best foot forward for. So it's awesome that not only did you complete it, but you had success on it. And like you said, anything you put your, your, um your head into, you're like, I'm going to crush it.
2: Um, but it wasn't easy either. Like I'll be the first one oh to God. say it wasn't easy. I had to do, well, I still had to sleep 10 hours a night for school, but I had to like, Really be rigid in my schedule to get yeah. to the points I wanted to. And knowing that it's not going to be easy and that you have to enjoy the grind, like I say in the book, is truly like something that I really valued in that time was to enjoy my grind.
0: Awesome. Last week, you hung out with all 13 surviving members for the first time since the accident over three years ago. What did that feel like?
2: Oh, it felt amazing. It was yeah. so rejuvenating and it was inspiring, honestly, to just be with everybody again and reconnect and joke around have fun and just be lighthearted and enjoy the moment that we had together and so um it was a long time coming we had a zoom call last summer of us 13 but we were planning we actually getting together last year uh in 2020 mm-hmm. but covid and there's gonna be all 13 of us there but covid right. kind of impeded that so this year we made it mandatory like we gotta meet um, mandatory yeah like we all <laughs> yeah. gotta do this like we gotta get it it was just super super nice to be
0: together. Oh. Awesome. Yeah. Last question before I hit you with some speed round questions. What's the future look like for you and what are you most looking forward to? Oh Boy, this is a long one, but I'll make
2: it short and sweet. So okay. I'm a doctor of chiropractic studies for four years at Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College in Toronto. So I'll be in Toronto for sure for four more years. Um, after that, I'd like to pursue a sports specialty in chiropractic, um, mm. which is another two years. And I also like to, per, I guess, move into a specialty of neurology too. So, which is another two years. With that being said, though, life ch- changes. And, like, that's my long-term goal. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, but for sure, get through my doctorate uh, at Canadian Marvel Chiropractic College within my four years. And then um, coming up, though, next summer, I'm going to Arizona to do a chiropractic internship with Arizona Coyotes. So, I'm really cool. looking forward to that. That'll be awesome. And then yeah. um, I'm also going to ireland that summer too next year um i'm gonna be doing a chiropractor internship as well with the sport chiropractic of ireland the head of it all um so i'm really excited for that working with tons of different wow. athletes like football wrestling rugby weightlifting like, this should be super cool um so yeah. i'm looking forward to that too yeah like i just want to have a normal life too like i don't i'm not planning to ever writing another book again i don't plan on doing <laughs> a movie like i I'm I'm done right. with that kind of chapter, I think. Like I've I've yeah. done it with the book and I'm able to set that chapter down and now it's like move on into other aspects of my life that I really enjoy and like friendships, family, um, and all that. So I'm just gonna try to live life yeah. to the fullest and travel and just make the most of it.
0: That's so exciting. And what I love about like everything you do, it seems it's like you you struggle and emerge, like you you go through something and then you come back. And not just learn from it, you want to help others through it. So it's so cool that you are going into sports as a sports chiropractor. Like you're going to just be able to help people not only from the science side, but from the emotional side as well. And that's going to be like super valuable. Okay, before we let you go, I'm going to hit you with some speed round questions here to, to learn a little bit more about you on a different level. So first one is... You talked about your first cell phone having a cell phone when you were, were very young. Yeah. Outside of like the bag phone, do you remember what your first cool phone was? Was it like a Blackberry? Yeah, like, do you remember what Motorola that Motorola Crazer. Yes, that's a good one. I had one of those too. Yeah, not the Razer with the yeah. skinny one.
2: The yeah, the one. Crazer. Yeah, I was able to play yeah. music off that and I thought it was so <laughs> yeah. cool. I was jamming up yeah. to that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> was it like the, was it like the metallic blue one? No,
2: it was metallic gray. I liked the metallic blue one, but I didn't have it when I went and got my razors.
0: I had the blue one. Oh, that's cool. (laughs) Um, Next question. Um, Connexus did get a shout out in your book and you joked about how you felt underqualified to be giving financial literacy (laughs) presentations as a young hockey player. So I want to give you the opportunity to redeem yourself now that you're outside of hockey, have a commerce degree, and are a successful (laughs) author. What financial literacy tip do you have for our audience?
2: Invest. I would invest your money. And uh, make a good budget plan. Good. Yeah. Well done. Well done.
0: Yeah. Uh, next question. <laughs> uh, you mentioned Scooby snacks throughout the book and we've talked about them here. Is that your go-to junk food or do you have another one?
2: Is this ice cream count as junk food? Because I love ice cream. Absolutely. I love yep. ice cream. Yep. That's my go-to.
0: Is it like a blizzard or is it like like an artist, artisanal ice cream? Like no, what is like, your typical it's... ice cream go-to?
2: So this is so Saskatchewan. I mean, if you go to Homestead in Saskatoon, yeah. I get the avalanche yeah. and that's to die for that's yeah, the yeah. soft serve avalanches. I go score Oreo. You can't go wrong. Uh, you can't go wrong. Anybody who's in Saskatoon area, Homestead, score Oreo avalanche, and you're gonna love it.
0: Okay, two questions left for you. Shit. Um, what what Mighty Ducks character are you? Goldberg you're goldberg,
2: Why? No, Why you goldberg? I, i'm kidding <laughs> i'm kidding yeah I'll, I'll go with goldberg i like goldberg he's hilarious sure
0: yeah everybody I'll, likes
2: Goldberg. yeah i like goldberg he's just funny i would not like him whatsoever probably the complete opposite but if yeah. i had to choose someone to be in a movie it'd be goldberg
0: there was a moment in your book when you were talking about your injuries that you had and you couldn't grip the stick and it was like t- took me back to that like adam banks moment where like coach Bombay tells him to like to grip the stick and like to rotate it. Yes, That's what all I can picture. Caleb, let me yeah. out.
2: Give me that Adam banks. I'll take that. Yeah. I like that. <laughs>
0: awesome. Uh, last question for you. What connects us? I honestly think it's motion and passions. Yeah, totally. Thank you so much, Caleb. Like your story is just like a paramount one for so many people in not just the province, but the world. And I think people love to hear what you have to say, not just from your story, but also from what you have to say for awareness for diabetes, um, the the issues that you had with your dad. You have so much to give. And I'm just really honored that you you took some time to spend it with us to hear not just what the writing the book was like, but um behind the curtain of of what things looked like from uh, the the humble tragedy as well. So thank you so much for spending some time with us today.
2: Thank you. It's been an honor to talk to you guys. And I also think none of that connects us is values in life. And you have amazing yeah. values as well. And Thank you for being so great with me and way way prepared and ahead of the schedule. And so thank you very much, Mason. I really appreciate our conversations.
0: Oh, I appreciate you too, Caleb. And I appreciate all of you listening right now and for joining us because that's a wrap on season three of the What Connects Us Podcast. I truly hope you've been taking something from these conversations to help you connect with others and that it's been easier for you to have conversations about the role that money plays in our hopes, in our dreams, and in our fears. Before you get on with your day, if you're enjoying the podcast, please do us a favor and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to the podcast. And please hit that subscribe or follow button. This helps us so much and allows us to continue telling these amazing Saskatchewan-based stories. Thank you so much for listening. It truly means the world. We'll be back at the end of September to kick off season four. Let's connect then.